Welcome, everybody, to our PCF Bible Talk podcast. My name is Anna McGill, and I'm here today with Debbie Boyce, and we are both on staff with Princeton Christian Fellowship. Today is a bonus episode to our series that we've been doing on the drama of redemption. And in this episode, I'm going to interview slash pick pick Debbie's brain about the issue of gender in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we hope that this will be a supplement to the things that we've already covered in the other podcasts on these chapters of the Bible. So before we get started, though, I want to just take a minute to introduce Debbie a little bit and tell you a little bit about her. So Debbie graduated from Princeton as an undergrad in 1979. And then in 2011, she graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary with her master's in religion and counseling. And this is her 36th year on PCF staff. Um, So Debbie has spent many years reading and thinking and teaching on the topic of gender in the Bible and the roles of men and women in the Bible. So maybe my first question for you, Debbie, is can you tell us a little bit more about how your interest uh, was peaked in this topic and how your thinking has grown and developed in this area? Yeah, well, in my early 20s, as a fairly new Christian, I had a sense that I was a bit of a misfit um, in many ways. Um, I grew up closer to my brothers than to my sister. And and then um, I had my first child, who was a girl. And I started to think about whether I should raise a girl differently than a boy. I felt sort of inadequate to raise a girl. And so I started studying this topic to understand it better. Um, And I'll tell you what I decided at the end. But um, as I studied, I realized I was not the only Christian woman who had the questions I had. And um, then spending many years here, having wonderful conversations um, with students as they wrestled with these things as well, I uh, have continued to grow in my thinking on the topic. Yeah, we just, I'm really excited, Debbie, that you're willing to be here and talk about it. I've certainly been blessed and instructed by you through the years that we've shared on staff and also when I was a student. And so just thank you for being willing to have this conversation. And before we dive in, we also recognize that a conversation around gender can be really challenging and sensitive. So we do know that there are multiple perspectives on this, even within the Christian community. So I'm going to be asking Debbie what she thinks and how she's interpreted and thought of these passages. Please feel free to follow up with us and follow up with Debbie, follow up with me if you want to talk more about what is said in this podcast, or if you want some clarification, or if you want to ask just a question or push back a little bit. We would really value hearing from you. Um, And so we don't at all view this as the last word (laughs) on all things related to these topics. So let's get started with our discussion in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter one, when human beings are first mentioned, Gender comes up very quickly. Um, in Genesis 1.27, it reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Pretty much as soon as the Bible mentions human beings, it mentions male and female. So, Debbie, what would you say are some of the foundational implications that we should take away from this fact? Well, first, um, I think this passage is saying that gender is established by God. And it's God's idea in a world that is good. This is before the fall, before sin has marred anything. 
gender already exists, um, and it already exists even before the creation of humanity. It's part of the animal world, and um, it's at least partly there to be a means of reproduction, but it actually implies some other ideas as well. And one is that, well, related to uh, reproduction, um, is that population growth is good, something built into biology for mammals and humans, um, and that reproduction happens by means of the partnering of a male and a female, not two of the same gender. Um, it's interesting that God unites the two different genders in the, in the creation of their joint descendants. Um, and second, there are only two genders, and they are assigned by God at creation. Um, by implication, this means that God has the authority to assign our gender. Um, neither Adam nor Eve select their gender, and this is a part of God's good creation. Um, and lest we miss the obvious, uh, we resemble God, not just men, but women. Um, and he is really, by saying this in the scripture, he's owning us both. He's proud to introduce the humans that bear his image, showing something about him on, on the earth, both men and women. So working from these foundational principles that come out of Genesis 1, then we get Genesis 2, which sort of reiterates the creation of human beings but with a more close-up perspective, giving a lot more details about the man and the woman. Um, so I want to talk about what you think some of the implications are of the specifics of the Genesis 2 account. So the first question I have is just, do you think that the woman is meant to be less valuable or less important than the man because she was created after the man? Adam is clearly created first in Genesis 2. We have some of the story about the animals, and then Eve is created. So is she less valuable because she was created second? Well, the short answer is no. Um, but like I just said, uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28 has already told us something about the human race as a collective. Um, and that male and female are both in the image of God and commissioned to rule and fill the earth. And so in the context of Genesis 1, those verses focus largely on the place of humanity in relationship to God and the rest of his creation. So they tell us that humanity is God's representative on the earth to care for it as God's stewards and then uh, another passage a little later on, Genesis 5, repeats that idea and says that Adam is the name of this blessed race of humans made in God's likeness and, and repeats that Adam and humanity or humanity, because Adam is the word for humanity, um, is both male and female. So male and female are equals in essence, because they both bear God's image. And I, I like to realize that Genesis 1 is God's first word about gender. And that first word is that they're equals. Um, so then comes Genesis 2, um, which zooms in on the creation of the, the two first humans. And, and here, what we're learning is how they relate to one another, um, Adam and Eve. 
And it's here that we learn that the first male human who bears the name of the race, um, Adam meaning humanity, um, he was made first and then the woman is created second. And many of us right off the bat react to that fact by inferring a second rate value to, to females. And that's a natural reaction. Um, if you think about it, the person who comes in first is faster or, or better than the person who comes in second, right? Um, many of you also know that Paul picks up on the, fa the fact that the man was created first under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And he says that God did this deliberately to signal something about their roles in marriage. The first formed human is called the head and the second formed is asked to submit. And so we also react to that by inferring a second rate value to, to females. That's, that's also a very natural thing for us to think. But those are human ways of thinking. God has already revealed the equality of the man and woman and God's word, every bit of it is true. And as difficult as it is to do, we have to hold these two facts in balance, that men and women are equally in God's image and that the man was made first. There are other facts that we're going to talk about in a few minutes um, that we need to pay attention to as well. Yeah. And so going along with the ordering of creation, Genesis 2 continues. And in verse 18, God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So what would you say, Debbie? Does that mean that because a woman was created to be helper to Adam, then she is less important than him or that she has a more constricted role in life? So how would you add to that discussion of not just ordering, but this designation of helper? So you might say this is really going from bad to worse. Not only was woman made second, but she is designated the man's helper. But the word helper in the Hebrew is the word azer. And a majority of times that that word occurs in the Old Testament, it is used to refer to God as the helper of his people. Um, so if it is humbling, if, it, if we really are right, that it's humbling to be made to be someone's helper, then the unique almighty God stoops to take that role. Um, so right there, you find out that the helper role is not an insulting role um, because God fills that role. But I think what is really more the reason of this is that it's a relational role. Um, in fact, God has also declared that the man needs relationship. The man is not adequate alone. He says it's not good for the man to be alone. So if being a helper is considered a demotion or an insult, uh, one must also recognize that being declared in need of a helper is also an insult. Uh, but I would say neither one of these is an insult. They're all meant to direct us to be relational, um, oriented to teamwork, rather than an individualistic mindset. Um, it's already obvious that the work of reproducing requires teamwork, but I think that the passage in Genesis 1 teaches us that all the work God gave humanity to do requires teamwork. The ruling, the filling of the earth, it was meant to utilize 
the diverse gifts of men and women. Um, I think this really goes against our Princeton mindset. If you just think about the senior thesis or independent work, the idea that it's promoting is that the culmination of your education and your arrival at adulthood is expressed in solitary independent work. Um, and I don't want to pick on Princeton too much, um, but I do think group projects don't excite us enough. I think God has designed us for a giant group project. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever really known a Princeton student who loves group projects. (laughs) I think that might be true. Um, Okay, well, so given these affirmations that men and women are equal in dignity and in the reflecting the image of God, and they've been co-heirs and given this co-calling over the earth, why do you think that men and women were not created at the same time? Like, why did God choose to create Eve in a different way after Adam, but then also out of Adam's rib. So what significance do you think we should take from that? Yeah, well, I, I it's, it's certainly true that God is powerful enough to have created Adam and Eve simultaneously from two handfuls of dust out of the ground. And that would have been more in keeping with Genesis 1.27, Um, Two image bearers equals co-commission to rule. And that would settle very clearly that neither is superior or inferior. So our problem is thinking that chapter two somehow disagrees with chapter one. And so one of them must be wrong. And and again, that's one reason why I mentioned Genesis five, the first two verses because it follows Genesis 2, so it sort of creates a a Genesis 1 and Genesis 5 sandwich that reaffirms um, equality, even after we've we've learned something in Genesis 2 that that maybe confuses us and seems a bit out of step. But I I think that God reveals Genesis 2 and says it teaches something additional, not conflicting, um, but additional. Um, God is directing all the events here for a purpose. The, the man is there alone, put in the garden to work, and God says he needs a helper. And then God does this strange thing. and He parades the animals before him. Possibly they're, they're coming pair by pair. But Moses says that Adam doesn't find a suitable helper among the animals. And so what has God just done? I think he's made Adam really feel his aloneness. He has no partner like him. He's the odd man out in God's God's world. So I think God wants us to know that we need other humans to relate to. He wanted the man, the first man, even in a good world, to, to want another human to relate to. Um, and that's not because of something bad, but something good. It's good to desire relationships, whether friends or a spouse. Um, We don't have to be embarrassed about that. But then God does something else, and he puts Adam to sleep, and he removed a piece of his side, or we often refer to it as a rib. We're not really sure. Um, But some part of of Adam's body, and um, from that body substance, God fashions the woman. And Adam is sleeping. He's not involved in her design. And so that really reassures me, just like Adam 
Eve is designed by the, the God of the universe, not by any inferior designer. Um, and then God wakes him up and brings him this helper, his life partner, or you might even say his bride. Um, and Adam breaks into poetry. He is so delighted. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he gives her a name that resembles his, and yet it, it is distinct. Um, man and wo woman are actually good English um, translations of this. Um, in Hebrew, the words are ish and isha. So Adam knows that they are deeply bonded to one another. They correspond to each other, though they're also different. And Moses then says, for this reason, and, and he goes on, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And he explains, he, he's giving the purpose statement for why God did things the way he did them. Um, it was to unify them. And this really has its greatest application to marriage because Moses tells us that marriage is to be a, a unified, permanent um, relationship. Moses is saying, this is why God didn't fashion them simultaneously of dust. They aren't just equal individuals that have something in common. They also are different from one another and they need one another. And all of these creation facts are how God wanted them to think of one another. Thanks, Debbie. That's really helpful. Um, so as we move on then sort of from the happiness of the end of Genesis 2 and Adam's poetry and his delight in finding Eve, then we get the sadness of Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve take different roles in the narrative. And actually, Eve takes a leading role in the conversation with the serpent during the temptation and she's the first to decide to eat the fruit. And Adam is with her, but he's silent and he eats after her. So here they, their experiences are different to some extent. So what do you think God wants us to take away from this? What is the implication for men and women today that this is recorded in scripture? Well, there's a couple of times when a New Testament writer will talk about um, what happened in the fall and particularly about Eve being deceived. Um, one of the most notable passages that you might be familiar with is in 1 Timothy 2. And, and so it talks about Eve's role in the fall of humanity. And I, I won't go into all the teaching from that passage. It's a very complicated passage. Um, Eve's deception and subsequent leading of Adam to eat the fr forbidden fruit is really catastrophic. And Adam's decision to follow her into disobedience is what the scripture says plunges all of humanity into sin and death. I've written about the, this passage on, in a blog that I co-write with another alum and uh, will link to those posts in, in the podcast description. But I just want to point out one affirming thing, even in how the fall occurred. Before the fall, we get a chance to see that Eve takes initiative and Adam follows her, perhaps out of love for her. 
Um, we're, we're getting a momentary glimpse that their gender doesn't play out according to maybe traditional stereotypes. It doesn't appear that Eve is somehow hardwired only to respond or to follow Adam's lead. Um, and similarly, Adam responds to her leadership. So, so perhaps this just suggests that gender stereotypes are our human invention or our human um, inference from um, what we see in the Bible. And that God really has gifted both men and women with both initiative and responsiveness and a whole range of other qualities. Um, so I said earlier that God assigns our gender, but these chapters in Genesis don't give much evidence that he spells out something like men are like this and women are like that. Um, when the man first sees the woman, he actually acknowledges both sameness to himself and difference. He says she's bone of his bones. Uh, so he's acknowledging sameness there. And then he says she shall be called woman. Um, and he gives her this distinct name because he's, he's seeing difference. Um, one social scientist that I really like, his name is Stephen Rhodes, he would affirm that men and women are more alike than different and that there is a huge variety of expressions of manhood and womanhood. Um, so I think as Christians, we should be slow to adopt stereotypes. We should be appreciative of the diversity of personalities of, of everyone. And even we, we can do this even at the same time as accepting our biology as something God given. And so I mentioned at the beginning that I wondered about raising girls versus raising boys. And I ultimately concluded that our main goal as parents was to raise children to be loving, brave, servant-hearted adults, ready for whatever responsibilities God gave them in life. Well, my final question uh, goes to Genesis 3, verse 16, where God is telling Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin. And he speaks to the woman um, and he says, quote, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, end quote. And that's the ESV translation. And when the NF NIV translation says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So this is a tricky verse. What do you think it means, Debbie? <laughs> Well, there's been a lot of scholarly debate on this verse recently. Um, the, for a long time, there's been a question about two words out of the verse, um, the words desire and rule. The word desire is a very unusual word, so it's hard to translate. The word rule is a very common word, um, but it's also multifaceted, so it's hard to know exactly whether he's using it in a positive sense or a negative sense here. But the, the new questions have um, grown up to include debates about even more common words, the Hebrew conjunction, which can mean either and or but, and then also the preposition, which can mean for, to, or against. Um, so anyway, in spite of all the potential for disagreement, all scholars agree that this curse brings something negative into the previously joyful relationship between Adam and Eve. And you can see that as soon as they eat the fruit. Um, 
they the scholars just don't agree on exactly what what the curse does to their relationship. But um, just like we um, begin seeing the effects of the curse on the man, um, they begin to show up in Genesis. Um, we begin to see the decline in male-female relationships as well. And some scholars believe the curse is the introduction. And this is actually the more important thing, that, that it's the introduction or the cause of role distinctions between men and women, making the New Testament headship of husbands to their wives an evil result of sin. But then others believe that God had already designed men and women in goodness to have somewhat different roles, which would unify them into a loving team to work together as God's stewards of creation. So I I think interpreting the curse is a little bit less important than um, interpreting how God originally um, created humans. And because because if he really did create humans with, like I said, somewhat different roles, then that's a good thing that we should embrace. As you say, Debbie, these are big interpretive questions. And we're going to draw this podcast to a close in a minute. So we know that we by no means have enough time to really discuss all the facets of this conversation and this debate. But as we head out, do you have any resources that you would recommend that would help someone who is interested in taking the next step in this conversation and in doing some further reading? What would you recommend that they look into? Well, truly, uh, there's probably a new book on this topic every year, and there's just lots of books on the subject of men and women in the scriptures. Um, one that would expose you to multiple viewpoints would be, uh, it's called Two Views on Women in Ministry. Um, and it has contributions actually from four New Testament scholars. And, and so they're they're broadly uh, representing two views, but even among the four, you see that there's some just, there's some differences between how they uh, work it out. Um, my all-time favorite book on the topic is actually an older one, and it's called Man and Woman in Christ: An Examination of the Roles of Men and Women in the Light of in Light of Scripture and the Social Sciences, and it's by Stephen Clark. It was published in 1980, um, but I, I googled it, and it's still highly respected. Uh, quite a big book. <laughs> All right. So if you want some big books, we'll link to those titles also in the podcast description. So uh, you can know exactly which ones Debbie's referring to, because as she says, there's a lot of books on these topics with very similar titles. Um, And then also we'll link to the blog post that she mentioned as well. So thank you so much, Debbie. This has been a great conversation and we really appreciate the time that you've taken. And I hope you all have been blessed by listening to this. And as we said, please Feel free to follow up with Debbie or with me if you have questions or comments on things that were mentioned here. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and God bless.